decoded. Welcome to this series four of Founder Tech Decoded. In this series, we are going to take all of the insights from series one, two, three, where we spoke to platforms, investors, and founders around what Founder Tech represents, the opportunity it's opening up, the common points of how it could re-engineer the ecosystem with more agility, transparency, less asymmetry, and make it more impactful and more diverse. And all of those insights that were synthesized into what we called the Switch Deck, the link to which is in the show notes. So in this series, we're inviting founders, particularly founders that have exited themselves at some point on their journey, to come in, share their journey, and then for us to go through the switch deck and basically challenge, embellish, cancel, um, offer alternative viewpoints to the 10 insights that it's synthesized and accumulated. So I'm delighted to have on this episode, Carl Swanepoel, who is the founder of Revelancer and perhaps the, the youngest person who will have exited on this series, having done so at 15. Carl has been on his founder's journey that's taken various incarnations all the way up to Revelancer, that he has just received his first seed funding and is now going for his second round, and therefore provides a fascinating perspective as to what happens when you start early. So Carl, it's lovely to have you on the Founder Tech Decoded podcast. Um, thank, thanks for your time. And um, yeah, and maybe you want to share with everybody a bit about your journey and, and, and kind of how you got started, I guess, at 15. Sure, certainly. Well, thank you very much, first of all, Dan, for, for having me on your podcast. Pleasure. Um, in terms of how I got started, so at the age of 14, I decided one day that I wanted to be my own boss. I don't know quite where I got this idea from, um, but it stuck around. So I knew immediately that I had to take it seriously. So what I did is I went onto Google, I typed in how to make money online, and I found freelancing platforms um, like Fiverr and Upwork, which back then was called Odesk. And I listed some basic web and graphic design services on those platforms, you know, trying to make some money online from skills that, that I taught myself. And to make a long story short, I wasn't too happy with how those platforms operated. Um, so, you know, these platforms typically charge high commission fees, they stop you from speaking with clients outside of the platform. Um, and it's quite hard to get clients in the first place. So I decided quite quickly that if I really wanted to be successful in this space, I would need to start my own platform. So at the age of 15, with about 200 pounds, which is all I had saved up at the time, I started a web marketplace, uh, a freelance marketplace called Buy Sell Jobs. And Buy Sell Jobs was, you know, a freelance marketplace very similar to a platform like Fiverr, um, but it was my platform. And once I had it built, you know, I didn't have any money to promote it. Um, and not knowing anything about online uh, advertising at the time or not having any budget to do it, I sort of thought that if I can reach people who are currently using these other platforms and get them to also use my platform, that might be a good starting point. So what I did is I went onto Twitter Every time I found somebody speaking about one of my competitors, I would send them a message and say, hey, why don't you also join my platform and get more exposure? 
And this worked pretty well because after, um, after a couple of months of doing this uh, for several hours every day, I grew the platform to more than 2,000 users without ever spending a penny on advertising. But with that came an issue. And this is that one day I woke up to an email from PayPal saying that they had locked my account. And the reason they did this um, is because with increased financial traction, so at this point about 10 to 20 daily transactions and growing quickly, um, they wanted to verify who was behind the account in order to unlock it. And unfortunately, one of the things they wanted me to verify is that I was older than 18. And being 15, of course, I was not able to do that. Uh, so I went to my parents. I asked them you know, if I could have a, a PayPal account in their name to keep running the platform. They said, absolutely no way. We do not want to lose the house. They were also quite shocked because I think they must have thought I was um, studying for school or something. <laughs> at the time. Um, but you had, you, know, conf- I, you had to confess as well as ask. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, it was kind of a double whammy. Yeah. Actually, you sort of like creep down the stairs or whatever and go, ah, yeah. hello, yeah. <laughs> something to say. Hey, can you turn the TV off, please? I got that. Yeah, it was at that kind of moment. <laughs> yeah, pretty much was. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, you know, th- despite my persistence, they, they didn't budge. Um, so, you know, I knew I had to find a different solution. Um, so I went online to try and find a buyer for the platform as someone who could keep operating it, uh, you know, who was older than 18. Um, so, you know, I, I joined a web marketplace where you can sell websites and domains. And I connected with someone on there who I convinced to buy buy sell jobs from me um, for, you know, what at the time was a very nice um, sum of money just before my 16th birthday. Um, and since then, I started a, a, you know, a couple more companies. One of them was a um, a, a small marketing agency, and I had an office on my high street at the age of 18. Um, but after that, went to university. I studied AI and robotics, and then halfway through my final year, I came up with the idea for Revelancer, which is coming back to those issues I was facing early on, and sort of problems that I started addressing with buy sell jobs, and now really wanting to change the freelance industry for the better. So, so let, let, let's arrive at Revelancer. Then I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating origin story, and it's lovely that you've obviously the arc has come back to where you started, and now you're over eighteen. <laughs> over eighteen, you maybe I'm sure you've got a PayPal account. Um, <laughs> the um, what was it like? What is what is it was it like now? Because I know you've just done um, a sort of pre-seed initial round, which you didn't take very long. I mean, good to hear that. But what was it like, kind of then, kind of ramping things up to kind of raising, doing something where you are the definition of bootstrapping your first business? What's it been like when you kind of not gone for silly money, but you know, like got ramped it up and engaged with the with um, the, the the venture marketplace um, around this venture? Can you talk about that and how you closed that money so quickly, and, and also then going ahead the, um, the runway ahead? Yes, um, absolutely. So essentially, uh, the best place to start would be um, kind of the first funding that I raised for Avalon, so which is actually before the pre-seed round. Um, I entered a competition at my university and secured two grants out of that. So a total total of um, £13,000 to start the business. Um, We raised this before we launched the platform. And then within about, uh, well, in in less than half a year from when we raised that initial £13,000 grant, um, we were successful in securing a 160k pre-seed round led by the London VC SFC Capital right at the end of last year. Um, And essentially how we approach that is, well, first of all, focusing on traction. So, you know, I didn't try and raise investment at the idea stage, you know, very much focused on getting people using the platform, 
Um, at that point, we already had about 150 users at the time that we reached out to, to SFC. Um, I also made sure that I, you know, constantly called with different experts and kind of pitched my business to them and, and got plenty of feedback. Um, and then I was also uh, fortunate enough to connect with, with somebody who had been previously backed by SFC Capital, who was in the process of exiting his business, which was completely unknown to me at that point, who very kindly introduced me to SFC. And um, and the, the funding run actually went very quickly. So obviously, um, this kind of time last year was a very different uh, environment with, with fundraising. So sure. things moved a lot faster. But essentially, we had um, we essentially closed our our pre-seed round in, in about two days. I mean, it depends how you define closed. Um, but you know, how to, do you to elaborate, closed? how do you, you you define closed for us so we can understand what you mean? Sure. Well, all all, all of the money committed. Right. Okay. Um, so essentially, what what happened is um, I had a, a, on the on a Monday I had a call with with an angel investor. Pitched to him, he sort of said, you know, oh, I'll, I'll think about it. Um, I'll get back to you. On the Tuesday, I had a call at, at noon with SFC Capital. Um, the, the guy in DealFlow liked it quite a lot. So then he set up a call just three hours later at 3 p.m. with the other guy in DealFlow. Yeah. And then by 5 p.m. that evening, um, we had a term sheet from them, which I then immediately took back to the angel investor who I called with on Monday, showed him that, and then he committed funds too. So... And was it without um, going into detail? Was it was it a straight sort of equity deal, or was it some kind of convertible note? Because often to, to move quickly, those are more like ASA, advanced description agreements, or convertible notes. What was yours? Simply like you know, cash for equity. Um, if you if you can reveal the structure, if not, no problem. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, it it was a price round, so it it was an equity round. Um, okay. Yeah. And so uh, one one more question. So once you got the term sheet, how quickly until sort of money was in the bank? Like how long did it take to have to review that type of term sheet for that level of pre seed deal? Like what 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 were you looking at once you'd received it? Sure. So we in, immediately went into DD, which lasted about two weeks, and then there was a final week of um, them presenting it to the investor committee, um, and then the funds being transferred. So it was the the, the money was in the bank. Um, within about three weeks of receiving the term sheets, and did that feel? Because obviously, I, I'm going to I'm going to offer an opinion as to why that worked for you in that in that way. Uh, in fact, I'm going to say it now. I think you're an example of. We heard this a, a few times in in uh, from investors in series two that, you know, you are making your own luck, right? You're putting the work. Like you said, you focus on traction. You you know this sort of aggressive targeting. Um, you know you are. You are building your own incremental value, basically de demonstrating very high founder market fit, and therefore you are. But but more than that, you are able. To, I, uh, from my understanding, of this you you when you are communicating the path forward, um, there has a high degree of credibility because of all of that uh, background work that you've done, and contextual work that you've done. And then I am I, I imagine therefore the deal closed quickly because all of that was working in that way and there's and you know you that fluidity that you had is what all founders want they all want that right don't they they want to start to raise around find the right people and it closed within a reasonable time frame two three to three to four weeks because they're working on such compacted timelines that you need the investment to almost align with that do, do you know i i i mean that sincerely as a compliment do you recognize that in yourself when you see other founders because you see a lot of our founders go how do i create traction how do I create deal flow? Even how you leverage the deal with the angel investor is is just very clever, right? Not 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 out the box clever, but just 
you're understanding your leverage points, I think is what I'm trying to say. Do you recognize that in yourself? Yes, uh, I, I mean, thank thank you very much. And I, I do, I do, uh, I, you know, I, I mean, what also, what I want to say, you know, helped me a huge amount is speaking with, um, you know, other entrepreneurs who have fundraised, such as, for example, that Dan Swigart and, and Rich Willie, who are both advisors of mine now, yeah. um, who, who were very, very helpful. But I mean, I, I've always, um, I, I've always reached out to people and always like, you know, I always acknowledge when I don't know something, especially, you know, when I haven't even done it before, like, for example, fundraising. So I will, you know, talk to people who have done it to make sure, you know, and, and make sure that I've got the best strategy. Yeah. Um, okay. Look, I think that's really, really good sort of uh, synthesis of, of the, of a, you know, uh, of your, of that kind of from 15 to now. Um, we'll get to at the end what you want, what you're doing with River Lancer and, you know, how people can kind of contact you there and what you're looking for as well. We'll, we'll make sure we do that right at the end. Um, let's get into the switch deck, which is, as I said, is the synthesis of the previous series conversations. And it's been received very well, but I'd like to kind of, you know, align, overlay your experience and the story you just shared. We're going to be doing this throughout this, this series. Um, with you know your real world experience your real world um viewpoint so we'll take it we'll literally take it sequentially and we can move quickly through something that just is not relevant or you don't have a view on or but equally if there's something that really resonates let's get into it or even challenge it or try and find a better version of it so um let, let, let's let's dive in so the first the first um point the first insight is that venture is at now at a crossroads that it's having not really disrupted itself there are now these new technologies and approaches and thinking that we have been exploring and that we call founder tech that, that are kind of looking at the market inefficiencies now your story i think is quite rare because it was it's highly efficient you know it, it works for it worked really well for you and that i think is maybe the point that that's really rare and again i give that props to you because i think you leverage the levers that you needed to make that happen but do you think from talking to other founders or is it your experience that that actually there is an efficient way to do that and and there are common points of how you make it work efficiently or do you see founders struggling um which informs this point um you know which generally and it is inefficient and doesn't work and kind of is really frustrating and impacts on all aspects of that founder's journey and their well-being um and that actually new tools and approaches are coming in what, what what's what's your view on that as, as like i say as someone who's had quite an efficient experience and maybe for ventures work has worked for you to this day but it, it, uh, not just just not just now but looking forward as well as you as you as you perhaps look to raising um, bigger rounds what's what's your view on that sure um so I mean, I, I did have a very smooth experience with SFC Capital, and, and I think, you know, that's in, in part very much to their credit because they're an excellent VC to work with. Um, but beyond that, you know, we also used, for example, Seed Legals as a platform to kind of facilitate the round. And had yeah. we worked with a traditional law firm, it would have not only been much more expensive, but it would have also, I'm sure, taken much longer to get everything sorted. So I suppose in, in a small way, that's already um, kind of a component, you know, an external component that's making the process much, much more efficient. Um, what was it about SFC that was so good to deal with? Like in terms of, it was just, was it clear from the moment you engage what their process was? Were they very clear about that, the parameters and the timelines? Was that, was that there? 
Yes, I mean they they have an absolutely wonderful team um, who I've many of whom you know I've been very lucky to meet in person as well in in London. Um, and they are incredibly clear. Uh, so, you, you know, up front, we knew exactly what the process looked like, what the timeline looked like. You know, they sort of had this pre-built um, data room because at the time we didn't have a data room, but they kind of had the, you know, the bare bones and a checklist of what they're looking for. So we could just kind of upload folders directly into a cloud drive like that for them, them to have a look at. So, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a, a, a an excellent process um, all, all in all, which I know, you know, now, um, currently doing DD with with a number of different VCs, um, you know, it isn't unfortunately always that smooth of a process, and I, I think um, you know that certainly a, a lot can be can be learned from that approach. Why do you think that is? Before we before we move on, like what what what? Why do you think? Because if the the whole point of this is that if they you know when when you go into other industries, they look at all the inefficiencies, all the legacy tools, all of these things and make them efficient. Why do you think there is so much inefficiency generally about, about you know, when, when it can be done so well and so cleanly and using tools like seed legals that, you know, are a really important part of this conversation. Why do you think a lot of venture isn't done? Again, let's not name any names or anything like that, but like what what do you think is, do you think it's literally just a legacy issue? Do you think, let's say if you were to design a VC and come, you know, coming in into the system, do you think you would, you would view it completely differently and therefore we're just simply dealing with legacy from the past? I mean, I, I certainly would. And actually, my my long term goal, you know, many decades into the future is to start my own VC after right. I've, you know, hope, hopefully had a, a substantial exit and, you know, being able to um, fund that. But um, I, I would do things very differently. And I think an, an, an issue is just that, you know, people have gotten very used to processes of the past and they might be a bit, cons- you know, like, let's take seed legals for an example. Um, SFC was very uh, happy in using seed legals, but I also know that we were one of the first deals that they closed using seed legals. Right. And seed legals has has been around for I, I don't know exactly how long, but a few you know, years, for yeah, longer a few than years, yeah. last year. Yeah. Um, so I I, th- I think it's just perhaps a, a hesitancy to adopting these kind of technologies because you know it, it might be for example that a VC has a relationship with a law firm you know um, I don't know for the past 10 15 years or something right, right and now suddenly there's this this online tool that says you know they'll do it for the tenth of the tenth of the cost and there are all these like you know cookie cutter contracts and things you know and, and to their eternal credit I mean Seed Legals is is a very credible platform and, and we use them all the time but I can see how somebody who is perhaps you know has has been around for a lot longer and and used to doing things a certain way might get a bit you know hesitant of using a, and trusting a platform like that even if it makes things far far more efficient. Yeah, I mean this is a human nature, isn't it, to go to default to what you know um, and and what's whether it's worked well or not for you. People tend to sort of stay. It's the boiling frog idea, isn't it? That they, I don't, which I, I've heard is actually a myth, but um, you know, that a frog will stay in the water until right at the last moment, and, and they yeah. realise that it's too late. Um, let's go on to let's go on to insight two. So uh, this might be really interesting. So this what this is saying: quality deal flow is starting pre-product. So what it's saying is that there is actually a chasm um, that that because of a, a lack or a diminishment of e, uh, sort of low-hanging e-commerce B two B SaaS deals i.e there's not many more deliveroos or ubers or even netflix or whatever like floating around on netflix SaaS. but you know what i mean like they're, they're those those things are not in the pitch decks and the funnels that there's actually this chasm and therefore uh, uh vc and venture and investors in general have to move down the funnel into the pre-cc space to find the quality opportunities where 
they are in is what, what what we've been calling like scalable niches, where where a founder has understood a scalable niche that's quite deep set in their market sector, and then wants to kind of gradually gradually you know ramp that up, and that that actually that quality deal flow is starting more and more pre-products. I mean, or, or or just on kind of early stage, no code, low code, and you seem to sort of embody that right, that ability to get something off the ground really quickly and demonstrate traction. Would you would you agree with that? Um, and I please push back. I appreciate the way I'm phrasing these questions is quite leading, but but um, yeah, like what, what what do you think of it? I, I mean, again, it seems like that that is something that you you res, you mirror in a way. Yeah, I, I mean, um, you know, to to be completely transparent, I'm not sure I can comment that much kind of on this fundraising um, chasm, but it is very interesting, you know, what what you have identified here. Um, but I, I do, you know, I, I, I mean, lots of the VCs who I have spoken to over the past couple of months, we are way too early for, you know, they will invest from series A, maybe earliest series B often for the first time with a minimum check size of, of say, 10 to $20 million. And many of these VCs are based in, in Silicon Valley. But what was also very interesting in speaking with them is uh, with one of them in particular, they said that the uh, they, they want to sort of have a relationship with a founder on average for four years before they invest. So in other words, they'll communicate, you know, touch base with you initially at pre-seed stage. And then four years down the line, you know, if you're, st you're still going right. and you're kind of at a good point, they'll write you, you know, a $20 million check. It's more than most um, marriages. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Wow. Um, is that, that's true. Okay. I'd never heard. So they're, they're trying to, they're saying their point of difference is to develop deep relationships way up front the funnel and then kind of check back in and see, actually, if you are four years in, we can then scale and provide probably, I'm assuming series A and above to actually then ramp up. Is that, is that what they're saying essentially? Yes, it, it, it is. And I believe that there are around 15 of, of VCs that, you know, more or less match that description of what I just told you, who I am now, you know, kind of giving quarterly updates to. And then maybe sometime down the line when it comes to us getting to a series A or series B level, that they will be, you know, pretty good uh, initial contacts. So I just I'm not I'm not trying to give you like, you know, credit for just for say, but I just want to feedback to people listening what you just said, because it's such a rare thing to say your every quarter you are updating VCs that you're not looking for funding of because you're thinking downstream that you want to build those relationships. So whenever you're at that inflection point where you need that capital, you're going in warm rather than starting again. That's that's what you just said. Is, is, that, is that correct? Yes, certainly. I mean, my, my head is constantly, you know, in the future. Um, yeah. and, and, and $20 million or, you know, or, or, or higher, it's no, no small amount of money. And it makes, you know, and, and just putting some quarterly updates together that I sent yeah. to my current investors anyway, and then just extending that to a few more email addresses is, is, is hardly a, a lot of work on, on my part, but it could mean that, you know, some years down the line, actually that's a very pivotal part in, you know, being able to, to secure that kind of capital. So this is where, uh, this is where I think the VCs have a, make a really good point. They are like, there is so much that you can do within your agency as a founder to not just get our attention, but to maintain our attention, you know, from thought leadership to proper just kind of management of comms, whatever it may be, you can control those things and we will pay attention to those things. And I think a lot of founders just wait, you know, or just sort of, sort of blindly sending pitch decks, which um, this takes us on to our next point, point, point three, which is this, this idea around the pitch deck. I have a personal, not a beef with the pitch deck. I just think it does a lot, lot of damage uh, to people. And I think it's a classic example 
of a legacy tool that you would never design. Nobody forward thinking would design it in that way. And it's it's an engineering tool. It's a product, you know, engineering tool. Um, the way it's designed is to do that. It helps people who, who think, you know, from a financial point of view, helps if you've got a large funnel, then the pitch deck is useful. But for anybody in those early stages, and again, you know, I'd like to, love to hear about your relationship with your pitch deck. Most people's relationship is not nice. It's, it's like, they've got set, I just spoke to a founder, they were like, I've got seven versions of my pitch deck because I've got all sorts of different feedback. And then we were just talking about, you know, the the irony that people spend so much time on this document, even changing fonts and diagrams. And, and yes, it is useful to, to help think strategically and hone your thinking and, you know, kind of make it sharper. But then the minute the, the uh, money is closed, generally, no one refers to the pitch deck again. So what's your experience with your pitch, pitch deck in the recent round? Do, do, I'm assuming you have one. Like, how, how long did it take? How many times did you change it? Are you still referring to it? Could you give us that feedback? Yes. Um, so, I mean, I, I have quite a lot, lot of stuff to say here. So, I mean, personally, um, personally, I, I am a fan of the pitch deck. I thought you uh, might but be. Then, yeah. Yeah. But then at the same time, I don't know, you know, how much that is just to do with being very proud of the pitch deck that we now have, you know, which, yeah. which um, my team did an excellent job in in putting together. Um you know, or, or if if there were a different system, you know, I might sort of look at this and, and just like you think this is an absolute, <laughs> absolutely terrible idea. And I mean, there is a serious law of diminishing returns at, at play here, you know, with yeah. um, updating pitch decks, making tiny tweaks he, here and there. I mean, it can take hours, days, weeks, months yeah. easily, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think that the pitch deck that we have right now is is very good. It does a good job of, in fact, you know, now when I pitch to investors, I've gotten to the point where they either won't have questions at the end and just immediately kind of, you know, indicate whether they're interested or not, um, or the kind of, you know, the questions that they ask about are like, what's the valuation you're raising at? And, you know, kind of exactly the conversation that I, I want to have. Yeah, of um, course next but that came from you know so many times getting the question of like have you heard of fiverr are you different from from fiverr you know to where yeah. now i added it right to the front of my pitch deck and front and center you know showed how how we're different um, yeah so I, I i don't know i mean are you still going to use it carl are you still going to use do you use it in meetings do you use it to frame the future or was it simply a device for to get your round over the line like what is it a, an ongoing useful tool no, no, it isn't. And, and we have spent, we, we have spent, you know, um, I don't even want to think about how many hours building pitch decks for, for previous rounds and previous iterations, which now just, you know, are, are never being seen again. Yeah. And sure, you know, I, I like to take a look back every, every, you know, couple of months or so and, and look at previous pitch decks and see how far we've come. Um, but outside of that, it doesn't really serve a purpose. Okay. Well, next <laughs> so quiz show, let's, um, <laughs> So I don't, know if you, I don't know if this is relevant to, to your experience, but there is this rise in um, syndicate um, 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 founder and, and solo-driven capital um, gaining traction. So this is the idea that individuals can start to act as VCs, individuals that have a, a point of view and are attached to large amounts of capital that they can deploy, or individuals using platforms like Vauban or Odin can access syndicates really quickly without having to go through the regulatory process that prohibited that. You know, have you have you come across that? Have you thought about that? Have you touched these these ideas? Is are any of your kind of um your your investors or you know do they sort of tick the thing of being a solo capitalist or founder driven capital? Has, has any of that kind of encroached in your into your world? 
Yes, I mean, it, it certainly has. I recently raised money from um, Bob Skinstadt, who's uh, he was the South African national rugby team captain um, about 20 years ago. And he now for the past 15 years has lived in, in the UK and worked in various different VCs. Um, and, and he invested alongside a, a co-investor recently. And, and I would certainly, you know, describe him slash them, um, you know, as as this kind of, you know, so kind of, you know, an individual or group of individuals acting like a, like a VC, because I sort of went through DD with them the same way, you know, you, you might with a, with a VC. Yeah. Um, and, and then they invested. So I think that there's certainly a, a rise of this. I think also with the current, um, current economic reality, it is, you know, in many ways, much easier now to raise from angel investors than to get VCs on board. But of course, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages to to both kinds of um, of capital, but it's very cool to see you know new platforms like Odin, for example, um, sur surfacing and sort of making that lowering that barrier of entry. Yeah, and and, and I think that takes to it's interesting that you that you that you are have sort of bumped up against that, and I think this takes it straight into kind of point five, which is this, and this this feels again very very aligned to what this conversation that what you're able to do. And this is what sort of those solo capitalist founder driven capital understands is that traditionally asymmetry has been leveraged right in the conversation between a founder and an investor and it's traditionally that asymmetry that puts that founder feeling like they've got to look up the whole time and chase and sort of please whereas actually the correct relationship we want which were the previous previous insight addresses is is you want a level relationship it needs to be aligned um and engagement needs to be transparent um in order for if you're going to move ahead like why does that asymmetry need to exist and i think again what you've done a very good job of and in, in kind of almost controlling the comms or controlling the room metaphorically if you know what i mean it's like leveling that communication out and then you find when people like yourself have done that it's better for everyone right everybody then appreciates it because you, and you alluded to this before everyone's then talking about the right things rather than how do we navigate this asymmetry or this funnel or whatever anything like that I, I think I think the two points are look. The more you have kind of a line founder-driven, uh, you know, capital, the le the more level it is in theory because the founder, uh, exited founder, founder-driven capital understands the founder's position. They've been there, but it sounds like that's really important to you, like that level engagement. Like I, I can't imagine you would tolerate much bullshit as, it was, as a technical term. <laughs> it, is that is that is that? What, let me ask a better question. Is that a red flag that if you start to see too much of that kind of non-level? asymmetrical kind of engagement would you kind of go i don't want to do i don't want to do business like that oh yeah i mean i i write it off immediately um right i mean the the, the the way to think about it which i think um many people miss especially if you're kind of early on in your journey and it's a first time fundraising is really taking a step back and thinking about why is avc investing in you they're not investing in you because they liked you know they they want to give you some money to you know sort of make you happy or something um they are they raise funds from their limited partners you know uh, and they then have to deploy that capital with the view of generating a return to investors yeah. so you as the startup founder are presenting them with such an opportunity and yeah. if you can sell that effectively and they're interested you know then it's very much a a, a level relationship to a large degree because they have that capital they have to deploy it they have to find good opportunities you know you are offering them a good opportunity um, so it, you, you are on much more kind of equal terms than I think many people, many people think. 
How, how did um, you get and, to that realization? Because you hear that from all successful founders, are really successful. They understand that. How did you? Did, did you have a mentor? Or did you just arrive at it and realize it, or is it? Yeah, I'd be interested in how you arrived and kind of held that position. Well, I think it is in part due to speaking with you know different startup founders, mentors, and advisors. But I, I've also always had a tendency of, um, you know, thinking just you know, I, I kind of from first principles. You know, yeah, um, I can hear that. So. Yeah, r rather than just listening, you know, or, or kind of taking the emotional response of, you know, going to a meeting like that, thinking, you know, this is make or break, they're either going to give me a huge sum of money, or they're going to say no, but really understanding the kind of mechanics behind it. And like I said, in, in a couple of decades, I would love to start my own VC, I, sure. I would be very grateful to have that opportunity. Um, so I've always taken an interest in kind of how they um, operate as well. But it, it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you, you know, they're, they're not a charity. It's not a grant. They're not sort of, and I mean, even a grant, you kind of can describe it in a, in a similar way. They're also yeah. looking for an opportunity yeah. to make something out of that money. Um, but it's just always kind of, you know, it, it makes sense to me that it should be on on a level ground with, with mutual respect in both directions, because I think both sides bring a lot to the table and, and are necessary. Yeah, it's like you said, if you are genuinely valuable, everyone understands the risks, you know, and I think you you, you get that sort of like, you know, a lot of people don't understand the, the risks on both sides, but generally in early stage space, that risks assume. But if you have a valuable, you know, runway or road to a path to value, then you are valuable. You are valuable. As you said, they they need those, that deal flow is vital to, you know, their their model working. And if they're not, if they're not generating that, then, then, then their model will stop working not in, in in quite a short time frame so i think that holding your position and, and and this 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 comes to kind of number six which is open communication is becoming a currency so like you know there's a whole generation of people who don't want that kind of clouded opaque conversation um communication so i'm going to ask you this i think i'm going to this is the way i'm going to ask this on the series what's come up um uh, over and over again is the idea of um everyone would prefer a fast no to a slow yes What's your favorite fast no where someone says, Carl, not interested, but this is why and good luck? Like, what's your favorite example of a fast no? Sure. Um, I mean, I always really appreciate it if, um, if they give feedback. So, you know, if they're clear about why is this a no? So, you know, is it that they have a conflict with a portfolio company? Right. Um, you know, is, is it because they think the market is too big or too small or, you know, just whatever it, whatever it ends up being, um, are we too early? But I always want to understand. So um, I think the, the number one reason that, you know, we have been rejected from, from VCs recently, the number one reason in those cases um, is that we are too early. But at that point, I will always follow up, you know, and kind of say, no worries, thanks for letting me know, you know, at what kind of traction milestones would we be within your, your scope of interest? So I'm always interested in kind of figuring out, you know, if it's a no now, it doesn't mean it's always going to be a no. Right. Um, but I, I do agree, certainly that a fast no is the respectful thing to do if it's going to be a no um, and that then just helps you plan better as well but also if it's a yes then it's helpful to know you know kind of before much dd sort of happens and the process gets dragged out it's sort of helpful to know um what amount you know would they be looking to commit under what terms um of course pending approval of dd and ic etc yeah. but if everything goes to plan what exactly is that going to look like because it just helps you plan much better yeah so nearly nearly there so 
this this is um, generally the sub the, the point seven insight seven is evaluating subsurface cues is essential. So what this means is that this has come out from investors. Then when there's very little sort of um, product market fit, product metrics, you have to be looking at other cues, right? They're, they're, and the really good investors know how to spot these. So. Um, what we were just talking about, you know, the ability to generate traction with very little resource is a brilliant kind of subsurface founder cue. The way that you're following up um, and kind of maintaining the way you're interested in the no. Um, and I, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm going to kind of abstract those those kind of uh, those ideas. Those are really what 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 Carl has been um, describing are those subsurface cues that found that that the investors really pick up on. And I think it gives them the confidence that they're talking to someone they can trust and do business with. Um, and when those cues aren't there, it's very, very difficult for them. We're going to get into founder market fit at the close of this, but it's very difficult for them to kind of evaluate the founder on that in that way. And again, Carl, it sounds like the, the, the do, let, let, let me ask a question. Do you meet founders that come and say to you, I'd love to do what you are doing? And you think you're just not giving off the right subsurface founder cues. Do you, do, do you kind of get it? Can you see that in people? Yes, I, I can. And I mean, the biggest thing that, that I always say to people if they ask you know, me, me for advice is that the number one most important thing is grit. Uh, and, you know, it, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't even really matter how able you are. But if you just won't give up and you'll just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, you're eventually going to make something work. And, you know, and obviously, if you can also then match that with um, learning and, and kind of, you know, uh, sharpening up your, your skills and abilities that just increases your chances even more. But I would rather be, you know, com completely unintelligent, but have a huge amount of drive than be very intelligent and have no drive, you know? Yeah. Um, ideally, if you can have both, if you're l lucky enough to have both, that's ideal, but the, the drive part is so, so, so much more important. Um, and in fact, I, I, with your permission, Dan, I've, I've got a, a little story, actually, um, of this, uh, you know, Please. kind of uh, my start. Yeah, thanks. Um, so basically, um, when I set up my office for uh, my business, um, kind of, uh, you know, a couple of years back, marketing agency, it wasn't good, you know, uh, it wasn't a good decision for, <laughs> from a business perspective, because it was just eating into potential profits that we could have otherwise made. But what it was good at is attracting the attention of the local newspaper, um, which did a big piece, you know, on the front page of the business section of, you know, this tiny town's lo local newspaper, by the way. So nothing, nothing too impressive. Um, but still, you know, they did a kind of like a big spread with me, sent a photographer over and everything. And then I got an email um, when this went out from somebody who said, oh, I'm an entrepreneur based in the local area. I would love to meet up. I don't know why I didn't, you know, Google who, who this was. Um, <laughs> I have no idea, but I just agreed, you know, said, sure, why not? Um, invited him to my office. He he turned up. He was, um, yeah, had a top knot, if I remember right. He was like, okay, came on his, on his bike. Um, when he got off, he started vaping before he came into the office. So immediately I kind of thought, you know, who, who is this guy? Um, and within, within about 30 seconds, I realized who he was and I knew that I had to maintain that connection no matter what happened. Right. Um, and this guy was was the um, former CMO and a co-founder of Just Eat and is essentially responsible for, for putting them on the map. And right. his name is Matt, Matt Brady. Um, and I didn't have anything, you know, kind of to offer him or, or, or anything for him to offer me, you know. So I kind of kept in touch. And then um, three years later of maintaining that connection, 
an opportunity came up. So, you know, with starting this business, which is Revlon, which is a two-sided marketplace, just like Just Eat, you know, I thought he would be a, a, a brilliant advisor to have on board. So I had maintained the connection, you know, reached out every couple of months or so. So I reached out to him and I asked him, you know, hey, Matt, uh, just set, have this idea for a business, you know, would love to kind of hop on a call and explain more. Um, he got back to me and he said, sorry, no, I'm too busy, you know, not interested. Then what I did is every two weeks after that, I would, you know, achieve a bunch of things like, you know, come up with a partnership with X thing, you know, come up with an idea for marketing or whatever, you know, and every two weeks I would send him an update, you know, over the past few weeks I did X, Y, and Z. And he ignored me. <laughs> he, he completely ignored me. I did this for three months and he completely ignored me every single time. Um, and I know that he ignored me because he told me he ignored me in the end. Um, but, you know, I, I and then it got to just before this university competition. And I said to him, you know, hey, the competition's in a few days time. You know, I'd be super grateful if you could hop on a call. Um, you know, not sure if my messages came through. At that point, he told me, he replied to me. And so I said, no, I was just ignoring you. Um, he then agreed to hop on a call. I pitched him the business. He then said, you know, are you trying to win the competition or are you seriously trying to build this business? I told him, of course, I'm seriously trying to build the business. Um, and then he agreed to be an advisor. So he's still an advisor now and, and he's been absolutely pivotal. You know, I think if it weren't for him, there would have been many opportunities, you know, or, or not opportunities, but many instances where this business could have um, very much gone, you know, a different way, uh, a less good way. Um, so I think, you know, kind of the reason why I told that story is because, that's the kind of grit you need. And also the same thing as, you know, if a VC rejects you, it doesn't mean it's always going to be a no. It's your job to, you know, keep figuring out what can you do to make it compelling enough and, and to, to get it to be a yes. I think you're giving a masterclass here. Uh, I think this should be like distributed to MBAs. Like we're, we're like, this is like what you're describing is textbook in terms of kind of just, just the management of that relationship, how many people would just be like, put it in the bin, you know, like, and, and, and just to continue to kind of, as you said, a no is not always the same no, context, leverage. Um, I'm aware of time, so let's move through the next ones. Really, I'm going to ask you a spitfire question because you kind of dealt with the last slide, but let's, let's talk about what's your favorite bit of uh, founder tech? You mentioned double-sided marketplaces. Do you have a favorite bit of founder tech? You mentioned seed legals, something else that you have used that you that you love, that gives you more sort of capacity as a tool? Go. Yes, absolutely. I'd say Seed Legals is fantastic. DocSend is absolutely brilliant. I, yeah. mean, I use that to um, send up my deck. Also, Calendly uh, is really good yep. um, because when I send investor outreach, I've got a Calendly and a DocSend link in there and it just makes things so so much easier. Um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say that. And then obviously outside of Seed Legals as well, I see on the slide you have Seedfast. I mean, we've raised lots of money through um, Seedfast. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant very very affordable and such an easy and smooth process for both us and the investors totally totally agree um okay this is number nine we're, what this is all about is rewiring the ecosystem as we can as we can see from this conversation it's been fantastic it's like you know there is so much potential with just a few sort of calibrations and tweaks and connecting all these things up so if you can imagine you know, like like you just said, you know, connecting Calendly to DocSend, that's that's just creates a whole new efficiency. But imagine all of this, what we're talking about is rewire with founder tech. What do you think that could, because my, my, um, my, I posit that within not a, a very long uh, time at all, um, like we could have a different ecosystem. 
Do you agree with that? And then if there is, what's one kind of thing that you would like? How would you like that ecosystem to behave? Let's let's just say that you I, I have a feeling you might be running a fund faster than you think. Let's say in five years you're running a fund. What's the ecosystem that, that you would like around that fund? And, and you know, you, you've got a serious amount of money under management. How does that ecosystem behave? Just what's the feeling of that? I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of efficiency, and right now, as you point out, uh, it just isn't efficient, you know. So I I would want it to be very efficient in you know applying in the first place, getting a fast no if it's a no, but also an opportunity perhaps to to prove them wrong. Um, then you know when it kind of gets to the call stage, being very very clear about what the process looks like, what the timeline looks like. Um, but also it'd be great if there were you know more more tools um, out there to make it easier for for VCs um, to raise funding. So I mean, Seed Legals is of course a, a wonderful example of being able to set set up the term sheet, set up all the documents, yeah. you know, all the legal documents that you need for a round. But it would be great if there was a lot more. Yeah, I, 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 well, I think there will be. I think I, I've, there's enough evidence to see that people are starting to literally connect the dots. And once all those dots connect. You could do completely different things. And the key thing is efficiency, transparency, agility, you know, and it's basically automating all the low level functions, right? That shouldn't take a lot of time and elevating all the high level functions that should be valued, which takes us nicely to the last last point, which is that, you know, the, the, and you've demonstrated this throughout. So I'm not going to argue, but, you know, found a market fit you know, is is not just a nice to have, or it's not frivolous, or it's not kind of like a poor man's product. It's, it's a different kind of currency and quality. Um, and I think it's when you do the blend of the two, particularly in the early stages, where you might not have a lot of product, product traction. If you can demonstrate that, I think a lot of what you've described is the leverage of that founder market fit, um, so that you can launch the products that you want. Does, does that do you relate to that? Because that's what I hear when you describe the, the, what you've managed to do is find all of these different levers and understanding around how you uh, amplify your founder market fit and you've you know and you've converted that into you know product market fit. Would you say that's fair? Yes, I mean absolutely. I think I think um, you know it's at an early stage, so kind of before you can really value a business by um, you know by the amount of revenue that it's generating and, and now putting a multiply on that. Um, you know, VCs should be backing the founder first and foremost. And that's because, you know, you might need to pivot in order to find the right idea several times. Um, uh, and so the founder has kind of a lot longer lifetime, perhaps, than the initial idea. So that's that's the one you should be backing. Um, and it's absolutely essential then also to, you know, have uh, a track record um, and, and kind of be able, being able to verify those um, those kind of, you know, skills um, and, 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 you know, being able to show that you are the right fit um, for being a founder in this market for for this business. Yeah, and those are things that you do have agency over as well, which makes it why it's, why it's so interesting. So that that's fantastic. Um, let's close with Revelancer, your current endeavor and startup, and uh, I guess baby, um, where uh, again, I hope you do have your own PayPal account because otherwise, that's uh, I don't know where <laughs> the money went to. Um, but um, no, in all seriousness. Is there anything there that you want people to um, just do, just do a shout out for it? What what it is, um, you know, freelancers, you know, that you're looking for, you know, next round of investment. Do, the floor is yours to close with uh, in terms of what 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 you'd like regarding Revolance. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So um, our mission at Revolance is giving freedom back to freelancers. Over the past eleven months, um, we have grown the user base by twenty two point four times. Um, even though we launched, you know, halfway th through last year and already had a, a fair amount of traction, a fair few hundred users. 
um, you know, we're, we're VC backed, raised our first pre-seed round um, last year. We're currently raising our seed round and, you know, excited to use that to help get business get to the next level. And ultimately, you know, what, what I'm looking for is to connect with um, other founders, you know, who, who I can learn from, who I can possibly um, give, you know, some, some valuable advice to. Um, and, and also connecting with um, angel investors or, you know, VCs who might be interested in, in our journey. How much are you um, raising, Carl, um, in this round? Uh, we're raising half a million pounds, but we are uh, quite likely to overfund um, quite significantly because we already have all of, uh, nearly all of that committed and we're yeah. now in final um, conversations with a few different VCs about term sheets for the lead role. Um, so it's quite likely that we'll be looking probably closer to twice that. And who is your ideal, going back to the whole conversation, who's their ideal aligned capital that, we, that you, if they're listening to this, they should get in contact with you and how should they get in contact with you? <laughs> I mean, I, I I think there are lots of fantastic VCs out there. Um, the the ones who I'm very interested in, you know, I'm I'm kind of already in conversations with that that I am aware of. Um, but specifically, you know, what we're looking for is to work with a partner who can really help us take the business to the, le- to the next level. So any kind of you know marketplace experience. So if they were previous investors in say something like Just Eat or, or Deliveroo or Uber or something like that would be would be very very valuable. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, I, I think SFC Capital, like I was saying before, is kind of the the, the standard of, of, you know, what I think VCs should be should be judged on by my experience of them, because, you know, I deliver quarterly updates to them. And basically, I don't hear from them unless I need their help on something. And, you know, in the cases where that's happened, if, so if I want an introduction or some input on something or to be connected with, you know, a, a different portfolio company or something, they've always been incredibly quick to to act on that. Um, so, yeah, we're just looking for for a great partner to work with to take the business to the next level. And how do they get in contact with you? What's the best way? And we'll put it in the show notes as well. But what's the best way to contact you? <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, I, I might regret this, but I'll, I'll say my email address. Uh, so it's K-A-R-L, my first name, at revelancer.com. Um, so that would be the best way to reach me directly. But I'm, you can also find me on, on LinkedIn by looking up my name. Okay. Well, that's absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you for kicking off um, Series 4 um, and road testing the, uh, the Switch Deck, um, putting it through its paces. A real, real pleasure, Carl. Um, I really, really think it's a, this is a fascinating episode for anybody listening, for, particularly for founders who kind of haven't worked out that their job is to, to do that leverage you know, and to own that leverage and amplify their founder market fit and keep comms up and all of that kind of and own their position. I think you've really given people an insight. So I'm very, very thankful for you being open about that and, and being on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me, Dan. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a very interesting conversation. And I, I hope that, you know, something I said can be of value to someone. I'm sure it will. Thank, thank you very much.